Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and mental well-being and to encourage community. And when I say encourage community, what I mean is that I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We enjoy hanging out together. We enjoy doing things together. We enjoy cooperating with one another. We're good beings. However, it's important for us to know that there are also a certain percentage of us who are very different. They are avaricious predators. They want to dominate rather than cooperate. These people would have us be subjects rather than citizens. And we must be ever mindful of this very small percentage of people so that they do not take over and rule us. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, one of my great heroes, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the great privilege of our guest being Dr. Peter Jostet Hughes, who's a philosopher of mind and metaphysics. He specializes in the thought of Spinoza, Nietzsche, and Whitehead, and in fields pertaining to altered and parapsychological states of consciousness. He teaches at the University of Exeter, which I found out today is three hours from where he lives, and he takes a long train ride to go there to teach. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. Thanks for the uh, invitation. But I should just want to say one thing. I'm not a specialist in parapsychology. It's uh, the panpsychological aspects of the mind, as in panpsychism. Thank you for the correction, and uh, I agree. You've got my I, I name perfect. In your book, a Sentience, you talk about panpsychological states, not parapsychological states. Peter, you bring psychedelics into philosophy, and one of the ways you do it is by talking about the history of philosophy and the history of great philosophers who use or have used, or at least people think they use, psychedelics, including Plato, uh, perhaps use, having ergot in the drink that he took in the uh, Eleusinian uh, cabals, these little get-togethers that they had that he was fortunate enough to go to. And then you go through many other philosophers who did the same, whether it was John Paul Sartre or uh, William James, of course, the, the philosopher Huxley. What, what can you tell us about modern philosophers and the use of psychedelics? Are you guys using psychedelics to enhance your work? And if so, are you talking about it? Are you writing about it? Or is it all sub rosa, as in the book that I just published, Psychological, uh, a Psychedelic Wisdom, in which 19 prominent sci scientists and psychologists and psychiatrists out themselves about decades of sub rosa psychedelic experiences. But the reason that they were willing to out themselves, Peter, is because I chose people who are all elders. So they're in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and have less to lose by outing themselves. Tell us what's happening in philosophy and psychedelics. Right, yeah. Well, um, people did say I had a lot to lose about 10 years ago. They said, don't mention this, it's a career killer. 
but actually it's sort of made my career in many ways. So what's happening recently? I mean, I can, I can speak for, well, what, what we're doing at, so at um, University of Exeter in Devon and Britain, we've got a psychedelic a research group, and that's both part of the philosophy and the psychology departments. Because in psychology, there was already, for the last 10 years or more, there's been um, experiments with ketamine, ketamine use against uh, addiction and so on. So we teamed up with Celia Morgan there, me and Christine Hauskeller and a number of others. And um, it sort of culminated in a colloquium we have every two weeks uh, where we have guest speakers, but it also culminated in a book, uh, in an edited volume by Bloomsbury um, called Philosophy and Psychedelics, where there's 15 authors, including ourselves, and we tackle different um, philosophical aspects of psychedelic experience and psychedelic culture, as including ethics, you know. Um, epistemology and uh, metaphysics. But of course, the, the so-called psychedelic renaissance, as you know, has been mostly focused on the medicinal um, uses of um, psychedelics in the last sort of uh, 15 years or so. Interestingly, in the 90s, with people like Rick Strassman, it was, it was not really for therapy. It was more about the biological substrates of consciousness, you know, with DMT. But it seems that in the, uh, in the last 15 years, we've returned to the therapeutic model of the um, sort of 50s, 60s, early 70s that you see with Stan Groff and people like that. Um, so little focus on the philosophical aspects, which, you know, Humphrey Osmond, who coined the term psychedelic in 1957, I mean, he said the most, most important thing, he was a psychiatrist, but he said, most importantly are sociological, religious, and philosophical implications of psychedelics. But this has kind of been lost. So we're trying to bring this back now. At least what we're doing in Exeter, but also around, you know, globally, there, there, there's more and more interest. Well, that's the reason that I invited you, or one of the main reasons I invited you on the program, because of the fact that you are a philosopher and you're looking for the implications of psychedelics for philosophy, because I'm a clinical psychologist, and I, in my, my research and the books that I've published, have been focusing on psychedelics as a medicine. But I'm very interested in the implications of psychedelics for philosophy. You know, in, in my view, Peter, and I very much want your opinion on the following, I see that there is a struggle going on on the planet between two groups. Uh, one group I call the social Darwinists. And the social Darwinists are people who believe in sort of the king of the hill philosophy. Uh, you know, who, he who, uh, the, it's the golden rule, you know, who, he, he who has the most gold rules. And they believe that the people at the top deserve to be at the top. That's part of the Darwinism that they're, they're, that they're espousing. And that the people who are left aside are meant to be left aside because that's the way it is in evolution. And that's their philosophy. And they would like to rule and they would like to rule everyone. I believe also that the people who hold the, really very strongly to this position turn out to be tyrants and dictators. But that's my prejudice. Now, on the other side of that group of the social Darwinists are the humanists. And the humanists believe that there's enough for everybody and that we can provide basic food, shelter, education, uh, and, and, and medical care for everyone. So we have the one group that's king of the hill. We're on top. Everybody else is below. The other group believing there's enough for everyone. The social Darwinists, of course, call the humanists socialists or communists or some bad word that they, they, they can think they can make up in order to criticize them. And the humanists, of course, call the social Darwinists uh, whatever, dictators, tyrants, thugs, bullies, etc. What's your perception of that conflict that I'm putting out? Well, Craigie, um, 
Mm. I mean, social Darwinism, at least in Britain, used to be um, a liberal uh, position, you know, in, in, in many ways. You know, with regard to Huxley, whom you mentioned, you know, Julian Huxley, um, he was he was a eugenicist, ultimately. And um, Thomas Huxley's grandfather, I think, dabbled in this, you know, with Galton and so on. Um, so it's been part of British history. But then since the Second World War, you know, it's sort of frowned upon. And you get, yeah, a swing to the other side, what you call humanism. And that's also related to, of course, you know, the decline of Christianity in many ways here um, is an ethic that's not based on religious belief, or at least not explicitly. My take on it, uh, gosh, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I broadly agree with what you're saying. It's hard to disagree. But um, I suppose the danger of um, providing for everyone is that, you know, the resources of the earth are limited. So we have to be a little bit careful there on the one side. At the same time, I don't believe in natural rights. I don't think anyone's got the natural right to dominate anyone else, ultimately. But this comes down to, a, this is a meta-ethical issue, essentially. You know, what, are, what, are, what is the basis of your ethics? You know, I, I studied a lot of Nietzsche in the past. And with Nietzsche, of course, you know, his famous maxim that God is dead means that we cannot base values on the belief in God or the church um, if we do not believe in him. We have no right to that form of morality. So where does that leave us? Personally, I'm a uh, what you might call an ethical pluralist. So I don't believe there's an objective uh, moral morality transcending cultures. But I think that uh, each, uh, like with Spinoza, really, you know, each person makes good and evil for themselves, ultimately, based on their interests, their families, and so on, their survival. But of course, when tyrants try to take over your work, I mean, we've in Britain here, we've had a lot of, um, in the last 30 years, we've had a big division of wealth between the rich and the poor. And um, as a result of that now, it's come to, a, it's, it's culminating now. So we've got um, strikes almost every day here now. You know, I, I, I went on strike even as a lecturer. So he said I traveled to Exeter twice, twice a week. Um, but sometimes that's difficult because the, 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 the rail um, people are on strike. The, the post people are on strike. The nurses have just gone on strike, even lawyers. So that kind of, I don't think that kind of dictatorship can ultimately work, you know. And of course, you know, if it's pushed to the extreme, you get revolutions. But we're coming to the point now of the general strike here in Britain. Yes, we could be coming to that point, And it's, it's liable to happen here in the United States as well, uh, Peter, because 60% of the United States right now are on the edge financially. They're so much on the edge that if they lose their jobs, they could be out in the street. Or if they need something like a new refrigerator, they can be completely out of luck. That's a very high percentage. Mm. And I remember going back to, grad, to graduate school, something we learned in sociology was that if you push the middle and lower class down far enough, they explode. They can't take it anymore. And there's going to be some kind of major civil unrest. That's what you're telling us is, is going on in England. That's very helpful to hear. I was not aware of it. I mean, you know, this is what Karl Popper, I believe, crit criticized Marx for. He's, you know, Marx um, predicted a you know, revolution here. But as Karl Popper said, you know, he didn't foresee the emergence of the middle class. So like a big demographic who, uh, you know, well off, relatively speaking. Um, sort of forestalled a um, revolution. But we have had a revolution here, the English Revolution, of course, in the 1600s. It could e easily happen again. I mean, you know, three meals, you know, living without three meals, you know, it's apparently a cutoff point. At that point, people will get desperate and um, things will change. I, how, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated situation. You know, energy prices, inflation's at 
Food inflation here, I think, is twelve uh, percent at the moment, thirteen percent. Russia, the Russia conflict has pushed up energy prices. Uh, yeah, it's not looking good, really. But I, I do. I'm an optimist. Ultimately, I think somehow we'll get through it. But that might involve some kind of repoliticization. I want to read to you from your own book, Sentience, a quote from Herbert Marcuse, who's talking about the relationship between psychedelics and culture, and what and what you and I are now talking about. From your book, the trip, in quotes, involves the dissolution of the ego shaped by the established society, an artificial and short-lived dissolution. But the artificial and private liberation anticipates, in a distorted manner, an exigency of the social liberation. The revolution must be, at the same time, a revolution in perception which will accompany the material and intellectual reconstruction of society, creating the new aesthetic environment. Awareness of the need for such a revolution in perception for a new sensorium is perhaps the kernel of truth in the psychedelic search. Mm. Comment to us on that quote, please, Peter. Well, I think it's uh, I included it because I, I agreed with it. And quite interesting that um, the, the relationship between evaluation, ethics, and psychedelic experience. I believe that some, not all, psychedelic experiences are so-called mystical, and we can talk about that coming from Plotinus and so on. And in many of the early 20th century definitions of mysticism, for example, from Bertrand Russell, the English philosopher Bertrand Russell, one of the four criteria he used to define mysticism was to go beyond good and evil, by which he meant to go beyond one, to go beyond one's ideology and sort of see it from above, as it were. And, uh, and Marcuse, I believe, is saying something similar in that um, psychedelic experience can give you a completely new perspective on not only yourself, and this can then involve, you know, therapy, as you know better than I, but uh, on society as well, you know, and um, you see yourself in a new light, you see society, your politics in a new light, one that you perhaps never imagined before, because for psychedelics um, can push you beyond, far beyond imagination. So I do think that is a power of psychedelics, and uh, perhaps this is one of many reasons why they were, they are prohibited to a certain extent. Is that the reason you think that politicians have been afraid of psychedelics and have been attempting to suppress psychedelics? I think it's one of many factors. Um, I don't think there's one uh, reason for it. Um, I think another legitimate reason at the time in the seven, you know, early 70s, late 60s was, um, you know, just health concerns. There's also racial aspects to it as well. And um, Puritan concerns, you know, you had, of course, prohibition of alcohol in, in the States in the early 20th century. So there's a number of factors that combine to push this pro prohibition that we're seeing fall apart. You know, I heard that Oregon just sort of legalized uh, psilocybin for certain protocols, didn't they? But certainly I think there's, there are political, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, prohibition of psychedelics is mostly political. I think that's certainly one reason, Psych you know, psychedelics giving you another perspective is certainly one reason um, for that prohibition, but not the only reason. Yeah. So, and that's, I suppose, what Marcuse is saying, or that's the implication of what he's saying. Yes, I, I, I caught note there that you mentioned that one of the political reasons is racial, and I was impressed that you were aware of the fact that in this country, uh, the laws uh, with regarding mind-altering substances have been used against people of color in a very dr dramatic and profound way, and you're obviously aware of that. Yeah, more in the States, it seems, than, than uh, Europe, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, I've heard, read about this with regard to Nixon and the war on drugs and his advisor. But also before that, of course, you know, the conquistadors in America, 
well, you know, you can, I suppose, classify that as a racism, um, prohibit, prohibiting their practices, their psychedelic practices, you know, the Aztecs and whatnot. So there's a long, there's, and, and of course, marijuana with the Mexicans. So there's a lot, it's not really my field, but I'm, I'm aware that of, of, of sort of, there's a complex etiology, as it were, a complex causal structure of reasons. Also, another reason I would say, pure, you know, the Puritanism of, you know, of the Americans, you know, of course, Puritans came from England, went to America and sort of set up shop and that, and that they, their legacy still exists as well, of course. So. Yeah, multi-classic. Their legacy, their legacy on us is profound, Peter, and it is, it is, uh, it's like a straitjacket. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry about that. You at know, all you times, but uh, yeah, it's. Um, I think as well, you know, a lot of Puritanism probably exists um, without people, you know, consciously believing in uh, Christianity. You know, that kind of um, that kind of moralism seems quite mm, quite common in America compared to here. Well, at least that's the impression I've I've got. Oh, we have inherited a moralism that is so constricting that it has led to uh, an epidemic of hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy is, is uh, creating neurosis and in some cases psychosis in the American consciousness because of the so much of mm. do as I say rather than what I do. So we have politicians, you know, screaming against homosexuality, for example, and those same politicians are picking up men in bathrooms and getting caught. We have evangelists screaming against drugs and prostitution, and then the same evangelists are getting arrested using drugs and hiring hookers. Uh, and and what that does, does well, exactly. And what that does to the flock is it creates the distortion of the mind because what are we to believe? Uh, what we're being told or what they're actually doing? And it's uh, it, it's a really is I consider yeah. it I consider it an epidemic, and I believe that our whole country is suffering from post-traumatic sexual stress disorder as a result of that. I mean, it's it's it it, mm. it beggars the imagination, Peter. We, we we had one situation here where a, a rock singer who was the uh, sister of uh, of uh, of Jackson, Janet Jackson was her name, and uh, she did a dance in front of the country at a football game halftime and her blouse or something went down and a nipple showed out. And one year later, our Congress was still talking about the, the, the nipple event and what they're going to have to do about it. That that's the extent of the of the hypocrisy. The madness is what we just and each is a solution, I think, to all of this. And he said uh, famously, you know, madness in individuals is rare, but in groups, societies, nations, it is the mm -hmm. yes, yes. I I see an example of that in my opinion. Not to offend, but uh, I've been watching a television program here called The Crown about the history of uh, of the English uh, monarchy and royalty and. Uh, it's 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 really from from an American perspective to see you folks chipping in each citizen chipping in in order to allow these people to live the way they live is is mind boggling. I I, I don't know how else to put yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not saying Britain is perfect. You know? <laughs> I know, no, yeah. Well, I I haven't watched that program, but I heard about it. But uh, the royal family is, of course, a big thing here, and uh, it's kind of uh, well, it's a whole other program. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, I mean, what is a perfect society anyway? How do we how do we determine that? You know, it's an interesting question. It is. And, and like I say, we've Britain seems to be falling apart in the last 10 years or so, especially now. So. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, crown anyway. 
Yeah. So no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> okay. We'll let that topic go. I'm going to come back. As I, I, so I gave this quote from your book from Marcuse, who's talking about how psychedelics can liberate people and therefore then have an effect on the entire culture. But on the other hand, almost on the same page in your book, you give a quote from the Nobel laureate Octavio, 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 excuse me, Octavio Paz, and listen to what you quote mm. him as saying. The Western attitude is unwholesome. It is moral. Morality, the great isolator, the great separator, divides man in half. To return to the unity of the vision is to reconcile body, soul, and the world. And here comes the big one. Psychedelic drugs are nihilistic. They undermine all values and radically overturn all our ideas about good and evil. What is just and what is unjust, what is permitted and what is forbidden. Fascinating thing for you to do, Peter. You put these two two men, quote, on two pages facing each other. Tell us about that. Well, okay. I mean, first of all, that chapter is just a sort of a quick overview of the philosophers who have spoken about um, psychedelics. Um, so he, you know, you have to include him. Also includes Ernst Junger, who was, uh, you know, was a glorified violence, you could say, and a good friend of Albert Hoffman's, you know. Um, I wouldn't say he was a Nazi, though. Some people say that's a complex issue. But um, yeah, with Octavia Powers, I mean, going beyond good and evil, I suppose, relates to what we said before with Bertrand Russell, but also what you just said about American society getting a sort of heart attack by seeing a nipple. I mean, you know, in one sense, you could say nihilism um, can mean you're sort of overcoming, you know, not having these objective values which criticize or judge things like that, you know. So in that sense, it's the same as Marcuse, you know, you're overcoming the uh, ideology of your age. Um, however, what's he mean by nihilism? So there are different meanings of nihilism. He's referring, he refers before that quotation to Nietzsche. Um, there's a nihilism which just says that there are no values at all. Everything is meaningless. But, and this is not what he means. Um, well, at least if he's borrowing from Nietzsche, he means this. God is dead, so there are no objective values. However, the world is full of values. Um, it's a plurality of values, like, like I, I mentioned before, like with Spinoza. And um, one is at liberty, in a way, to create values for oneself. We don't have to rely on the past. We don't have to rely on what other people have set in stone, you know, like uh, Ten Commandments or, 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 you know, Sermon on the Mountain, whatever, or utilitarianism or deontology or whatever. You know, we are free to create our own values. There is no absolute, you know. This is quite a radical position, of course. but. Um, Nietzsche was an ant is an anti-Platonist. Now, I'm not saying I, I, I sympathize with this. I've got sympathies with Platonism. But Nietzsche was certainly an anti-Platonist, as was Spinoza. And um, Platonism, in the, in the sense that there exists um, a transcendent realm outside of space and time, wherein, for Plato, you know, existed the forms, so-called, you know, so like the form, form of beauty, the form of justice, form of the good, ultimately, the form of the good. And by this transcendent form, which existed outside of all cultures, because it existed outside of the world, outside of the universe, and we can thereby judge things in terms of their um, attaining to that form of the good. Now, if you don't believe, if you do not believe in that Platonism, and Nietzsche said Platonism, uh, Christianity is Platonism for the people. Well said. Um, and we can talk about the interesting uh, history of Platonism and Christianity, actually. Um, via Plotinus, and that relates to psychedelics again. Um, but if you don't believe in that transcendent ideal, that standard, 
how do you judge? How do you judge um, your own culture to be right and other cultures to be wrong? You know, this is this is the question. This is the philosophical question, which has no easy answer ultimately. Well, it, there's no easy answer so long as we view the world as distinct cultures and we maintain that separatism. Once we get to a point of recognizing that we're all on the same planet and we do not have that separatism, then it becomes more of an issue of what are the values of the people on the planet rather than the distinction between the values of different cultures. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And well, I suppose if we've got a common purpose and other moments it seems we do have um, with the ecological crisis, then of course you have values. And that's ultimately values though for survival, not just of yourself, but of your offspring and so on. Exactly. So you could say that's a common, common value to humanity because it's a common danger. But that does, of course, doesn't mean it's a cosmic um, <laughs> um, or universal. And also, of course, you do get, you know, people... You do get pessimists who say, you know, it's better better off that humans do not exist, you know, for the natural world. And, uh, you know, there's there's something to be said about that. I mean, I'm not in that camp, but that has been said. Um, so if you if you don't value, if you do not value humans over other beings, then again, the ethical question changes. Let, let's come back to psychedelics and philosophy. Do you have any thoughts that you might share with regard to the psychedelic experience and the experience of ending life? And as a sub question, a sub question of that, do you believe that life ends? <laughs> well, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? Uh, what can I say? Well, I'll tell you this. I took five meo DMT, and I don't know if you've tried that. But the frog. A, I've tried. I've yeah, I've before. tried the frog. The frog. <laughs> um, I took a high dose of it, sort of by accident. But that was the closest I think I've ever got to what might be called what I something related to the afterlife. Um, now, to believe in the afterlife in terms of philosophy, there's two main ways you can believe in it, I think. There's either the dualistic um, way, um, which is kind of common in the Abrahamic religions, but also in Hinduism, you know, with metempsychosis that there exists, the soul is distinct from the body. And uh, they interact. Um, this is the problem in philosophy all the time. Well, how the hell do they interact? The body's physical and using physical forces, how does that interact with something which is not physical, not force? This was a problem Descartes could never really overcome. Um, so dualism is not really that um, common today in philosophy, even though it's the beginning of philosophy with Plato and Descartes. But um, so what are you left with? Well, you're left with the pure materialism, uh, which is that, well, you, uh, you know, the mind somehow emerges or is identical to the brain. And therefore, if the brain dies, that's it. Annihilation. The problem with that, of course, the hard problem of consciousness. We don't actually know how consciousness is related to the brain. We can see certain correlates, but even those empirically are not um, definite. And even if we had a perfect correlation between the mind and the brain, we still, the, this simply presents the problem over again, you know? Still, what is the relationship between, for example, a feeling of happiness and um, neurotransmitters within synapses acting according to certain patterns, networks and whatnot? So this hard problem of consciousness, I think, makes us kind of, uh, should make us open to other metaphysical possibilities with regard to the relationship between mind and matter. I write about Spinozism and the psychedelic intellectual love of God. Um, and I especially look at 5-MeO in this. Um, so Spinoza said, Einstein said he, he loved Spinoza because he's the first philosopher, modern philosopher, to bring mind and body together. They are not two separate things. They are one thing, but not as matter, as something neutral, as it were, right? And now Spinoza makes this great argument overcoming dualism in this book, Ethics especially, his last book. Um, but then right at the end of that book, he writes 
even though the mind is the body, when we die, something of us remains, which is eternal. And by eternal, he means outside of time. He doesn't mean infinite in duration. He means something outside, because he believes that time is the way we humans see the world. We see the world in terms of um, extension or space or spatial temporality, really, we'd say today, and mind. Um, there are an infinite number of other ways to see that same reality. That's what he calls substance, nature, or God. And that's why he's a pantheist, because he thinks that nature of the universe is God. And he was, the word pantheism was, pantheism was named for that, for, for Spinozism by Joseph Raphson. Anyway, so um, his view is, and it's quite, the last part of the book is uh, a little bit ambiguous, so there's a lot of different interpretations of it. But ultimately, he says, uh, what happens uh, when you die, put it very simply, is that you um, sort of merge with the, what he calls the infinite intellect, which is the mind of the universe, the mind of God. And that is outside of time. And so in a sense, that is eternal life, you know, not as a soul that survives the body, but as a stepping outside of time into eternity. So that's a, and, and, uh, so that's a way in which someone who doesn't believe in a monotheism and uh, a heaven or a hell can still believe in an afterlife. But of course, it's, very, it's, it's all you know, rather speculative and very hard to demonstrate in any way. But he, he uses a sort of rigorous logic, he believes, to come to that conclusion. And that, I should want to say one more thing. That is, he, he, it's not completely original on Spinoza. He gets it, he has sources. For example, Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher of the uh, 12th century, I think, or 13th, um, said something similar. And he was, a, he was an Aristotelian, ultimately. So you find on, in uh, Aristotle's book on the soul, there's one passage which sort of alludes to the same kind of eternal, eternal life. life. I always had difficulty with Maimonides and with Spinoza, although I am a pantheist. I signed on for it as soon as I read Spinoza when I was a teenager, uh, and I've been a, it's been part of me ever since. But, the, but the, this aspect of the eternal was very difficult for me my entire life. That part I did not really grok or sign on for until I had an experience uh, a psychedelic experience in which I saw myself leaving my body after death and joining a Mobius strip of souls sort of floating through the universe. And it was such a powerful vision that it came to me, this must be what Spinoza is talking about. And so I sort of, I made my peace with that possibility. I can't say I, I'm, I'm signed on for it, but I, I opened up the possibility that we do more than go to sleep forever when we die. I'm the same. It's a possibility. I mean, all, all philosophy is ultimately speculation, and I, it's also a criticism. So I know every answer, even annihilationism, has its issues. Um, and likewise, you know, when I take uh, 5-MeO, the reason I take 5-MeO is that for really academic reasons, you know, which is to discover this timelessness. You know, people always said this, the five MEO uh, experience is the most sort of unitive one in relation to the mystical text. I tried it and analyzed it in terms of that. But of course, uh, you can never be sure. I don't really believe in anything these days. I just entertain different opinions, you know, and sort of um, I rule certain things out. But I, uh, the more you read, you know, the less you believe, it seems. So uh, I don't know what happens after we die. You know, like, this is, I'll be honest about it. I'm with does. you 100% on that. I am a little tiny bit concerned on your behalf about one comment you made about taking an 
very high dose sort of accidentally. Why, how is a, dis, a distinguished fellow such as you take an accidental overdose? <laughs> um, well, okay, maybe I'm saying too much. You, you don't need to answer that. that. Okay. I'm just expressing it. I mean, I know I, I intentionally took it, but I, I took too much. It's as simple as that, basically. Um, by that was the accident. I, I sort of, yeah. uh, but anyway, I, anyway, I'm glad it happened because I had, you know, the full on experience that I have, you know, one, it's somewhat, you know, you have to be very brave to do that. And I haven't done it again because it's uh, so intense. Well, I feel, and it's certainly not for everyone. I, I, I feel or think and feel both the same way about 5-MeO that I do about uh, DMT, which is they are so rapid and so brief in terms of how long the experience is that I really haven't been able to grab onto something that I could use afterwards. Whereas with LSD and uh, psilocybin, there's plenty of time to focus on what it is that's coming into my consciousness and sort of make yeah. mental note of it so that I can then bring it back yeah. and use it. Are you, are you with me? Yeah, no, I, that's, and, and people say mescaline is especially good for that intellectualization and memory recall and so on. And it's true, but, um, you know, uh, I've tried those things as well and, you know, have made analyses of those. And I just wanted to, you know, I think this, you know, 5 MEO in many ways is non-visual, except for the white light. It's kind of mostly non-visual. So it's good to have um, that in one's uh, bank as well, I believe. And it's, like I say, very, very intense. And, well, I make the, I make the case for comparing it a little bit to what Spinoza means by the um, intellectual love of God, which, by the way, interestingly, in terms of psychedelic history, um, you know, uh, a lot of clinical trials now um, have this on their surveys, um, oceanic boundlessness, the oceanic feeling. You must have come across this. And, um, and when you trace that term, you know, Freud mentioned it, um, but he got it in correspondence with his friend Romain Roland, the poet. And Romain Roland, he used it to express the flash of Spinoza, um, which is a book of his. But it's also a concept, which is this. And Deleuze spoke about this as well in his two books on, on Spinoza. He means this. Spinoza is an interesting philosopher because he's got a, an, a very detailed, intricate, logical apparatus to understand his system. You know, you really have to read it and concentrate, connect parts to each other to understand what's going on. But at the same time, you can have this flash of Spinoza, boom, and you understand it all in one, like an intuition. At least this was Roland, and he called that the oceanic feeling, you see. So Spinoza's, Spinozism is involved, unbeknownst to most people, within psychedelic discourse today. That flash that you just described is what happened to me as a teenager uh, in college, in, 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 in philosophy in college. When I read Spinoza, I had that kind of flash, that kind of total resonance that this I can relate to and, and I, on a very subjective uh, level. Uh, interesting to hear you describe it's interesting. it. I mean, maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe Spinoza himself had this flash and then tried to conceptualize it, um, you know, but the flash might have occurred before the actual, um, the actual writing. I mean, arguably. But like I say, there's a lineage with Maimonides and others as well. So, yeah, but it's an interesting uh, line to follow. It's also you know, somewhat related to uh, Plotinus, of course, you know, the Neoplatonist who's had a lot of influence in our discourse on mysticism in the West. So is our psychedelics beginning not only in where you are and your work at Exeter, but are psychedelics beginning in this renaissance that's going on to have an influence on philosophers around the world that you have some interaction with? Is it a, is it a strong influence or is it a small group of yep. you in England and maybe a few other places? What's your sense of that, Peter? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a philosopher in Australia called um, Chris Leatherby who's written a book about it, and um, there's um, I've I've connected with uh, my Scandinavian brothers and sisters. You know, there's a number of societies up there, and the continent generally. Um, but um, like I say, it's mostly clinicians or psychologists, psychiatrists yeah. still, and neuroscientists. Yeah. But I've just I've just submitted a paper. This is what I've been speaking about recently, to argue case for and the paper was called on the need for metaphysics and psychedelic therapy and research so what i mean by that is the following that you know people think of uh, uh, you know philosophy as impractical you know ivory tower theoretical stuff but i think with psychedelic therapy there is a practical application of philosophy or at least metaphysics which one of the three uh, sort of pillars of philosophy which is this not always but sometimes a psychedelic experience can be what you call metaphysical experience and metaphysical experience is not exactly the same as mystical experience, but there's an overlap. Um, and my argument is that if one is having a metaphysical experience, um, one should have recourse to metaphysics for its integration. So someone's had, let's say someone's had this flash of Spinoza, but they've never heard of Spinoza. You know, most people I come across on the street, they're either like, it's either physicalism or it's dualism, and that's it. You know, these are the only two metaphysical options. They, so most people never come across Spinoza. I just saw Philosophy of Mind in Exeter, um, and psychology students have never even heard of him. Anyway, uh, I did tell them all about him. <laughs> but uh, so what I'm proposing is that as part of, and not an, as an additional part of, and then as an optional part of, um, psychedelic integration, and there are multiple different forms of psych, uh, psychedelic-assisted uh, psychotherapeutic integration at the moment as part of that uh, a patient or a participant has the option of trying to understand and make meaningful to himself or herself um, that experience they've had in terms of metaphysics and of course the difficulty is to um, be able to express metaphysics which can be quite complicated in a way intelligible to people who have never studied it before but i think it's doable so i've created this metaphysics matrix and a kind of questionnaire which comes out of it and i want to develop a handbook and maybe ultimately courses you know to teach psychotherapists um the, the rudiments of metaphysics so they can use this and and uh, of course it's a conjecture and the conjecture that's the proposal and the conjecture is this may lead to longer term may lead to longer term health benefits mental health benefits because there's a lot of recent evidence to suggest that certain types of psychedelic experience are more mentally therapeutic than others and those experiences that are seem to be, I mean, the evidence, you know, it's, the jury's still out, but it, it points towards the fact that certain experiences, some of them are, I would classify as metaphysical experiences, have the most um, benefits. Now, if you therefore, um, as it were, amplify that metaphysics in terms of integration, metaphysics integration, the conjecture, which can be tested, is that people um, will yield better benefits from it. Because uh, one reason is because they'd be less likely to dismiss. Let's say you have this flash of this, this, this oceanic flash, you know, and it causes um, benefits to your person. After a few months, you might, think, you might think to yourself, well, you know, that was interesting, but it's obviously a delusion, you know? So, uh, you know, and, and you sort of forget about it and you move on because you're now integrating into your culture's metaphysics, like implicit metaphysics again. However, if you are given other options, and you know that there's a legitimate, there are legitimate reasons for holding true these metaphysical positions. You might be less likely to let go of that belief, and therefore the benefits could last longer. That's the conjecture, at least, which of course hasn't been tested. 
but, but, but this is, uh, yeah, this is the way, this is my That's current fascinating. Research. And I would love to see what you're talking about applied to something that I'm presently researching and uh, writing a book on, which is the use of psychedelics in end-of-life transitioning. And I would, and mm. I think what you're talking about has application there because... Yeah, I mean, that's, that would be a very interesting uh, area to test this hypothesis and this new form of therapy, yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, Stan Groff said it was needed. Benny Shannon said this was needed. And Albert Hoffman did as well. I mean, this, the, the reason is, I suppose, that, um, you know, um, psychiatry and psychology, of course, they're very beneficial, but they, you know, metaphysics, metaphysics is not their remit. So um, that's why this hasn't been done yet. But I think there's a lot of potential here. At least one should do tests. So, uh, yeah, uh, end of life care. Absolutely. This is this is probably the most. This could potentially be the greatest use of it. Come to well, think thank of it. you. I, I, you see, I think it's time for a return to the integration of philosophy and psychology. Psychology really came from philosophy. Philosophy has been going on for thousands of years. Really, psychology has only been going on for what the last hundred or hundred and fifty years in terms of a field of of, of study. And it's time to yeah. integrate them again. And this might be an area in which we could do it because this conversation we had about you know what possibly could be next and and is there an eternal it's also as you well know is related to the fact that the public has been sold on a certain kind of afterlife which is being used to control them namely there's a heaven and a hell and if you don't do what we tell you to do right now you're going to go to that bad place and so as a result of that what we have is an inordinate fear of death on a grand mm. scale. I, I, I can't go around mm. the planet because I don't have that experience. But here in the United States, there is, in my opinion, an inordinate fear of death. And so when people get towards transitioning, towards that end-of-life time, or if they've gotten a diagnosis that's telling them that it's the end-of-life time, anxiety and depression are rampant because they're so they're mm. so afraid. From my perspective, they've been taught to be afraid of something that's no different than being born or drinking water or eating or having sex. It's just part of the developmental process that a certain aspect of what we call living ends. And as you and I agree, we yeah. don't really know what comes next, but we do know that living in this spacesuit or material body, what I call the transporter, it, that stops, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because in the West, we've, we've either got, it seems, a dichotomy of Christianity um, or uh, nothingness, you know, annihilationism, which is also sort of rather scary for a lot of people, you know, that it's just nothing. Um, but, you know, again, metaphysics comes in and says, you know, there are other options here, you know, and, um, you know, uh, uh, West, uh, we've been polarized in our culture. White, Alfred North Whitehead speaks about this quite a lot. You know, we've been polarized to thinking with binary uh, oppositions, which really don't reflect the state of possibilities of reality, you know. And you're quite right with psychology. I mean, like a lot of people say that William James started off modern psychology. You know, he's got these two volumes, Principles of Psychology, 1890, uh, which are excellent books. And, uh, but then, you know, and then he wrote in 1902, the, uh, varieties of religious experience, which is still very influential today in terms of psychedelic trials and so on, you know, but you know, uh, less than 10 years after that, he wrote some papers and he tried to explain, um, these mystical phenomena in terms of philosophy. So he like in their book called the pluralistic universe, which is a collection of his last papers, um, you've got, he tries to fuse, um, Fechner, 
who was a pan panpsychist philosopher, with Bergson, popular at the time, and Hegel. And this is actually, you know, this was, people talk about, uh, but came out recently talking about William James and how he set the agenda for psychedelic studies. But the intro, or the really interesting philosophical stuff that he, uh, that he advanced after that is completely ignored. Um, and also another interesting fact is that the principles of psychology, when you read it today, we, half of that, those books, those two volumes, would be classified today as philosophy of mind, not psychology. It seems that psychology in the 20th century took a, a route of both being very empirical, so you get all this data analysis and so on, measure, quantitative in other words, and at the same time, it became very therapeutic as well, you know? Um, but the actual philosophical questions that, you know, it's the study of the psychology, is literally the study of the mind, um, they, were, they were left untouched. But luckily in Exeter, I mean, I just taught philosophy of mind to psychology students. So they, ha they are beginning to reintegrate philosophy there. And we've got a, hopefully we've got a master's module on um, psychedelic studies coming out soon, um, and rather a master's program, so you can get certified in it, where we'll be looking at neuroscience, but also philosophy, be equally weighted. And um, I do see this as the future. You know, I, I think this is, you can't, I mean, if, I mean, it's a very basic point. If you're going to have metaphysical experiences, surely you must have recourse to metaphysics. I mean, it's almost true by definition, right? So, yeah, so hopefully so this is my hope and uh, my path. I, I think what one of your colleagues, if not yourself, would be, do well, be well advised to do is write a book on metaphysics for public consumption. Maybe it's time, yeah. right? Well, funnily enough, I have, um, I have suggested a handbook of metaphysics. This will be firstly for practitioners and participants in psychedelic trials. Ah. So they, they get a sort of general out overview of it. I've created um, like a table, a metaphysics matrix of different types of metaphysical positions. It's not exhaustive, but it's a start. And I think it is possible to do this. But yeah, you're quite right. There should be a public book about it. Just introducing, uh, you know, there, I mean, there are books on metaphysics. I mean, uh, for example, here we go. This is what is metaphysics, but it's for philosophy exactly. students. And it will never be bought. Right. It will be never be bought by the general no, public. So I, yeah, I think we're quite I nice. was talking about something that for the general public that could even be made into a into a documentary film or a YouTube, so the public who don't read, which is most of the public, can watch it on television, which is what most of the public does, yeah. and and that would be very helpful. Any if if you do this handbook on metaphysics, if it's not too much of an imposition, you might put me on your list to be notified. I'd like to hear about it. Uh, and and uh, give us give sure. us yeah, give yeah. us the reference. You mentioned a book on psychedelics that you're working on or is coming out. Bloomsbury, did you say? Yeah, it's um it's called Philosophy and Psychedelics. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's in hardback at the moment. It came out a few months, well, half a year ago in hardback, and quite an expensive academic book. But in March, it's coming out as a paperback for like twenty dollars. So um, that's when it will reach the general population. So if you just if you just Google philosophy and psychedelics, and name, you'll find it. Philosophy and psychedelics, everybody. Bloomsbury. That's great. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. This has been a, a lovely experience with you, Peter. Uh, I have one more question, and that is, if we take a pause, what might like you to add to what you've said that you haven't said so that our audience can hear those last words? I'll say something practical and something theoretical then. So we're in practical terms, um, at the University of Exeter in April, we've got Europe's biggest psychedelic conference coming our way. Um, it's a breaking convention, it's called, um, where there'll be um, a track that I head on mind and metaphysics, as well as hundreds of other talks and things going on. So I recommend people in Europe to attend that if they can. Um, 
Theoretically, I've been looking into my main interest in the last few days. I mean, I, I try to read something every day, but well, actually, last few weeks, I'm trying to look into this. Do you know this debate between perennialism and contextualism? It's a debate that some people like Huxley, William James, and, uh, and others, they believe that there's a perennial philosophy, a perennialism, where um, no matter what culture you come from, a peak mystical experience induced by psychedelics or whatever, fasting, meditation, is the same. It's, quali it's qualitatively identical amongst cultures. Um, and this is opposed uh, by Stephen Katz and others to contextualism, which is a view that even your site, not, not just the interpretation or the report, but even your um, experience itself is completely conditioned by your culture. So someone in England will experience something uh, if they take LSD and, and uh, high dose, let's say, and someone in the Amazon will experience something completely different if they take high dose LSD. And it's an interesting debate. Um, there's a third way, but I, I was looking at the origins of this perennial philosophy, and a lot of people think it comes from the philosopher Leibniz, the term. But it doesn't. He was the first to use it without referencing this Renaissance Platonist called Augustino Stucco, who wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy in 1540. And that book is, he was a Roman Catholic. He was an Augustinian, but he was a liberal, seen as a liberal. And, um, and this, this, is, uh, this experience, he thought, could bring people together from all different cultures. Because, of course, he was a counter, well, he was, this was... Actually, 1540, that's just when the Reformation began. But um, this was used uh, for political means to bring, you know, for peace, ultimately, for perpetual peace, as it's known. But this in itself, you can trace back in history to the venerable theology, which goes all the way back to Plotinus and then to Plato. You know. So there's this interesting strand of the one, you know, like unity related to the form of the good in Plato that we see which still has an effect in psychedelic trials today in terms of trying to measure that which is most beneficial to people. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just a historical um, exploration I'm on at the moment to understand that. The philosophical and scientific question is whether it's true, you know, whether we can all have the same experience. Uh, regardless of culture or not. This is, uh, the jury's still out on that one. Well, it, it, it sounds to me to an, an amateur philosopher like a, a, the, the platonic argument being argued again in another form because the perennialism that you describe really sounds like Platonism to me. Well, ultimately, perennialism is Platonism because it comes from, yeah, like Stucco from yeah. Plotinus and Plotinus from Plato. From Plato. But then, of course, people yeah. say beyond Plato, you know, Pythagoras, for example, he had the same idea before Plato and Plato copied it. So who knows? Well, Peter, thank you very much for taking the time for your busy schedule uh, to be with us today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I really appreciate it. It's been a privilege to be well, with you. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Richard. Thanks for the interesting um, questions and, uh, and uh, question, you know, issues and so on. It's, uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that, you know, you obviously have thought about these things for many years, as have I, and uh, we're still kind of, you know, I think openness is the key virtue here. You know, we have to be open to all these possibilities. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. But I just want to say again, it's really been a, a privilege to be in the presence of your uh, remarkable mind. And, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics, which is brought to you by our team, our team of Charlie Dice, our producer, Alison Kelly, our associate producer, David Springer, our sound engineer, Florian Furin, our editor, 
and myself, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, the host, reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right.